Hello and welcome to The Rundown, a podcast from Politics Home. I'm your host, Alan Tolhurst. With me to discuss a raft of new strike action and the government's response to it, I'm delighted to say we're joined by Mike Clancy, General Secretary of the Prospect Union, which represents civil service professionals such as engineers and scientists and is currently balloting for industrial action. Andy Prendergast, National Secretary of the GMB Union, whose members in the ambulance service have just announced six more walkouts in a dispute over paying conditions, as well as Vicky Ford, a Conservative MP for Chelmsford and a former minister in several departments, most recently as Minister of State for Development. So I'm going to start, I was originally going to start by listing kind of every strike action that's been planned, but that'll take up most of our time. So as we're recording on Thursday, the nurses are currently on the latest of their strikes. We've got upcoming strikes by physiotherapists in the NHS. Uh, teachers are going to go on strike, ambulance workers. As I said, I've got several more days planned. Bus drivers, ASLEF and RMT are both called strikes in February. Um, universities and also obviously civil servants from the PCS union due to strike on 1st February, that coordinated day of action. Mike, our sister publication, Civil Service World, reported this week on your members balloting for strike action. Do you want to explain why you've got to that point and, and why your members are looking at, at going on strike? Well, this is the first time we've balloted our members uh, nationally since 2011. And um, in that time, they've experienced around about a 20% real terms cut in their pay. I I posed this question recently uh, to to the government uh, in our most recent meeting. Is it your intention to try and continue to run the civil service if you were returned to power on the basis of real term cuts for uh, another 10 years? And I asked that question because essentially the pay system in the civil service is broken beyond repair. Now, incrementally, each year when there's been modest inflation, but nonetheless the pay rises have been less, uh, people have put up with it. But it's crashed into the 10, 11% inflation of uh, 2022, and it's it's unsustainable. And the the real contrast is that... um, Whilst we've got a larger civil service membership, the majority of our members are in the private sector. And I've repeatedly told government that we have better relationships with private sector employers who have markets and other challenges to to deal with. And they're finding ways of helping their staff through the cost of living crisis. And that's markedly absent um, from government. There's a pattern emerging. We have cordial discussions, but they're empty of substance. And the last meeting typified that. So we are now moving forward to statutory ballot. Um, Our members made very clear in the earlier indicative ballots that they're prepared to take action. And when you've got people who are very committed to the service that they provide in the Environment Agency, the Health and Safety Agency, parts of the the government uh, defence establishment, it really has come to the point where enough is enough and the pay situation is untenable. Mm, We'll come back to those kind of meetings with ministers that have been, whether they've been helpful or or not, I suppose, in the past couple of weeks. Um, Andy, obviously, GMB, explain... What your members are going to go on strike next month and the kind of series of walkouts and that kind of combined walkout with, with nurses on, uh, on the 6th of February? Yeah, well, we're currently taking our, our ambulance workers out. Following on from what Mike says, you know, what we've got within the NHS is we've got a system that largely is broken, that, that doesn't function, that's putting huge amounts of stress on our members. And at the same time, what we've seen is 13 years of, of pay, which has gone down in, in real terms. You know, we're seeing a 13% pay cut amongst ambulance workers. That's led to huge vacancies right across, across the service. And quite simply, what it means is the job that they signed up to, they simply can't do. And one of the big problems we have with the vacancies is we need to address pay. That's something that the Health and Social Care Committee and the Commons identified. And unfortunately, we've got a government who haven't listened. You know, and when we've, we've, you know, as Mike mentioned, cordial discussions, I wish we could say that in the NHS. The reality is that the government refused to talk about pay. They didn't talk about pay until the day before our second day of strike action. Now, you know, we are in a situation as a union, striking is always an absolute last resort, particularly in an area like 
like uh, paramedics where you know it can be a matter of life and death but sadly there's this failure to engage this failure to deal with these long-standing pay issues this failure to address the vacancies and quite frankly the appalling conditions our members are forced to work in is giving us no choice but aside from that you know and I think as Mike says it, it is interesting at the moment that we are seeming to have in most areas in a pub, in a private sector better relationships you are having people who are sitting down uh, about pay who are actually able to make a decision which is not something we're getting with the government you know we're constantly dealing with one minister who's having to go to the treasury often we're, we're getting nice words but nothing on aside from that but you know as a general union these disputes largely in the public sector at the moment but we are having private sector disputes as well so my union we've got the first ever amazon strike on the 21st of, of january but I think, you know, overwhelmingly what we're seeing is we have really 13 years of stagnation and it's really hitting people in the pockets. And I think people are just fed up. They believe that they want to see their standard of living at least maintain its current level. And when you're looking at very high mortgage rates, very high food bills, very high energy bills, they're simply saying enough is enough. Mm. I think obviously they painted quite a bleak picture, I suppose, of how things are going. I just wondered what you'd kind of made of the past couple of months and, and the kind of negotiations and, and where it kind of goes do you sense sort of a bit of frustration amongst your your colleagues that things aren't being resolved and if so where do you kind of lay the blame for that really so first of all I come from a big medical family I'm married to an NHS doctor I have huge respect for all of those who work in our NHS as former children's minister huge respect for our teachers and all they do and I also really understand how the rising inflation which we've seen across the world since Russia invaded Ukraine is really hitting people's pockets and making things really really hard I think these strikes are really unfortunate at this time when the NHS is trying to recover from Covid kids are trying to recover their lost education from Covid and that's really unfortunate but on the issue of pay we can't afford to have pay rises above inflation, like that which the nurses have asked for, and people understand that. That will fuel even more inflation. Inflation hits us all. I think it is important that we try and stick to the independent pay review process, which for this year is you know, just getting underway because that has tried to divorce you know, government ministers from actually making those individual decisions in different sectors. The nurses, for example, that independent pay review offered them an above inflation pay rise last year. So they, on average, had a 4.5% pay rise. And I know that inflation's increased since. So we want to have that in the independent pay review process for this year. Um, but isn't the so, problem, again, that, that, that the sort of, there's a bit of trust lacking in the independent peer review process at the moment from a lot of unions because the unwillingness to to reopen them and, and for it to the fact that it was based on figures that were miles behind where so so now. let's make sure you get the right figures going into this process and get the right review this time i mean if for example you look at what's happening in in schools back in october at the sort of peak of the worst time in the markets all of the schools unions asked for an extra two billion for schools that's what I and 20 or so other Conservative members wrote to the Chancellor asking for. It's what the now Education Secretary asked the Chancellor for. It's what the Chancellor delivered in October, just two months ago, the money that the unions themselves had asked for. And now they're saying they're going on strikes is not enough. And it just feels as if the goalposts are moving all the time. So I would ask for the unions to actually... Keep those cordial discussions, as you've said, with ministers. Make sure the right numbers are going into the pay review process and that we can look at this in the whole. But we do need to make sure that we don't have those above inflation pay rises locked in 
that will then fuel this inflation for year mm. for the next year, next year, next the, year. The, Every that costs everybody. But isn't the point again? I suppose that you talk about the nurses pay. Like that, that it was four percent was what the, the pay offer was, and they were looking for sort of nineteen. Surely there's a landing zone. I spoke to a number of four and a half is what they had last year, which was above yeah. inflation, surely, and, and those on lower grades got more. But do you not think there's perhaps, as some of your conservative colleagues have said, there's a landing zone between those two figures? You know, given given the where inflation is currently. So let's feed that into the independent pay review process and get that agreed. So you think uh, reopening it for this year is not really an option? Um, I just think that the the timing of this feels really difficult. The impact on my constituents and actually nurses aren't on strike in in, in my area of Essex, and, and thank you for that. But it's really, really hitting all those people who've waited so long for treatments, who've got sicker because they've been mm. waiting, and this is a lot due to the aftermath of COVID. I get very frustrated that the Labour Party don't seem to concede that COVID had any impact on the NHS at all, which clearly it did. And we need to focus on sorting out the, these long-term hangover issues from the pandemic as well. A couple of things. Firstly, when you look at the state of the NHS and when you look at inflation, they were going up before COVID. They were going up before the war in Ukraine, both of them. So it's a very convenient answer that everything is the fault of COVID or Ukraine, because it, it, it isn't. The second point, the independent pay review body in the NHS is not independent. Every single person on that is handpicked by the government. Even the employee representative is handpicked by the government. And in the last 13 years, that has given one above inflation pay rise, which was 0.17% above RPI in 13 years. And as a result of that, cumulatively, you have over 130,000 vacancies. So the idea that it's independent is farcical. The idea that it is delivered is farcical. And the result of that is being seen by our members every single day when they are dealing with massive backlogs. And you are right, COVID has had an impact. We're, we're, no one is denying that. But at the same point, these are issues which were festering before COVID. And quite frankly, the, the fact that the government keep blaming it on COVID or the war in Ukraine is just a very very convenient out to, to cover the fact that we have had gross mismanagement of the public sector. So, I so would, if I could just add, yeah, actually, there's a really interesting point around the pay review bodies. Um, and the detail on this matters. It's not just for industrial relations nerds. The civil service doesn't have a pay review body other than for the senior civil service. And interestingly, last year, the government refused to implement the senior civil service pay review body recommendation. So that demonstrates that even where you've got a pay review body, the government can intervene and decide to ignore its recommendations. Crucially for the rest of the civil service, they are in the absolute back of the queue when it comes to public sector pay. The pay remit process, which is a euphemism for pay control, uh, maxed out at 3% for 2022. So that's against the inflation figures of 10 and 11%. The government, when it comes to its own civil servants, might want to show an example, but the only example it's showing is poverty pay for a lot of its civil servants and uh, pay that is untenable in the marketplace for the sort of people that I represent. You know, if you're a um, health and safety inspector, you get uh, HSE having held a warrant as a regulatory inspector on your CV. You're a very attractive proposition to become a health and safety manager in the private sector. What is forgotten is a lot of civil service jobs have private sector competitors and the private sector are paid better. So there is no pay review body. When there is a pay review body, the government ignores its recommendations. And this is why it's an inescapable conclusion that for the civil service, there's a broken system and the government needs to address that. What the government's hoping is that inflation is going to drop 
It's going to take the sting out of people's feeling for 2022. They're playing it long. I mean, they convened a meeting with us and came up came with nothing to propose. And shunting it into 23, 24, pay remit or so on, well, you're just shunting it into a process that has already demonstrated it's inadequate for previous years. That's why our members regard the position as untenable. Can I just go yeah, back to the NHS staffing issue? And yes, there are lots of vacancies in the NHS. Yes, one needs to fill them. The moment, yeah. But there are also more doctors and nurses working in the NHS than ever before, as we know. I mean, from a local constituency point of view, I've seen how important it is to invest in training new doctors and nurses. And actually, I, I would say that the government did identify that problem. Five years ago, they agreed to open 10 new medical schools. One of them's in Chelmsford in my constituency. The new doctors are going to be graduating this summer. It's the first time we've ever trained doctors in Essex. Anglia Ruskin University is actually the largest trainer of graduates into health and social care anywhere in the country. A lot of that is through the degree apprenticeship route for, for nurses. They're now looking at doing that for doctors and for midwives and others. So it's also how do you train in more innovative ways? The apprenticeship allows you to earn, to learn on the floor, you know, in the wards as you go along. It, it, it is trying to get new innovative solutions as well. And so as well as discussing, you know, what do we want to have in next year's pay review, making sure that, that you're looking at how will you drive these innovations I think is really key too. So I, I can completely understand the ministers when they say we need to talk about how we use more innovative mm. ways to train to deliver our public services but as well. Clearly, the retention is a massive issue at the moment. It's not just getting yeah. people in, it's, it's that people are leaving because conditions are, are, are so difficult and conditions in hospitals, as we're seeing from lots of reports, you know, from terrible A&E waiting times and, and people stuck on wards and unable to get operations and things. You know, would it not be in the government's interest to, to reopen those pay situations and perhaps attach some conditions as well but if you don't open that pay it doesn't feel well, as though speaking as, to as these said, unions it's ever going to actually get said, resolved you know and, and I hear the, about there not being an independent process in the civil service but in many other areas there are I think they should be focusing on this but they also need to focus on other ways and, and this is what's why Steve Barclay gave the statement last week with more money going into things like hospital at home community beds I mean actually I spoke to my local ambulance service my local hospitals last week and they explained that this offload time between ambulance arriving and getting into A&E is now on average back below 30 minutes in my area so it does show that where you put in place these innovative solutions you can make the changes. Mm. I'd also say we are not the only country that's facing this. Today in France, there's the largest strikes that they've had for many, many, many years. You know, this inflation is not just a UK issue that's affecting workers. It's 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 all across. They're on strike on the France because of uh, uh, changes in pension, and, and I'm sure we're going to come on to talk about minimum um, service levels. But let's just talk about 23-24 for a minute because it's presented uh, now by the government as the crucible of hope. Uh, the Treasury's put in three and a half percent as the indicator for um, potential public service pay awards or pay scope. That's going to go nowhere near it in 23-24. So the idea that, you know, even if you take an average of the sort of inflation figures that are being predicted for, for, for this year, it's 3.5% or anything like that. It's still well below inflation for 2023. And it, it isn't a cheap point to say this is the same government that's lifted the cap on bankers' bonuses. So, you know, pay austerity, pay control being ex- encouraged onto 
the public service uh, after the many years of pay control, and indeed more generally that we know we can't have pay awards above inflation, is not economically literate. In reality, and your point about landing zone, the signals couldn't be clearer. Unions are looking for something. To borrow a phrase from, a, I think it was um, another union uh, said, it's looking to make a dent mm. in the level of inflation. You know, if the government, particularly with its civil servants, come and made a sensible proposal for 22-23, there'd be an be ability to find the landing zone. The reality is, and it was evidenced in the in the last few days about even the rail strikes, it would have been cheaper to solve the rail strikes than it was to have them. But there was a concern about, about knock-on. So pay constraint is a lever being applied to working people, but not being applied to everybody in the economy. Yeah, Andy, you know, I've not been in those meetings with, with ministers. You and your co- colleagues have. It sometimes feels as though they come out and things have got worse rather than, than better after some of those meetings. You know, do, do you see a resolution at the moment? Obviously, you, you've just announced further strike action, so perhaps not as we currently speak, but obviously ahead of those strike action, are you expecting further talks? Can you see a way forward that, that does lead to people getting back to the, around the table and, and agreeing to something? Well, I mean, quite simply, the, the way forward is to have a significantly improved pay offer. Yeah. Um, and For 22, 23, right? Well, look, you know, one of the things we are as trade unions is we're quite innovative. Um, you know, we sit down, we negotiate pay in lots of areas. We come up with interesting solutions at times. There's often ways where each side had res lines. And if we if we work together, you can sometimes get around those. I think there was some suggestions of potential one-off payments or backdating, which we're not a big fan of. But at the same point, I think it's fair to say, you know, what our members, are, you know, as Mike says, they're looking for a dent in the current yeah. situation. And I think if we can get there, it, it would be quite useful. I mean, just going back to some of Vicky's points, though, you know, there's an interesting thing we find with the, the Conservative government where they seem to have this moving line depending on where you are. So, you know, when they're talking about extra doctors, you know, the reality with GPs, and my brother is also a GP, since 2000, the population's gone up by 12%, the number of GPs has gone down by 12%. That's a 25% gap with where we were in 2000. Now, admittedly, that does predate the Conservative government. Also, in terms of nurses, you know, you got rid of the nurses' bursaries. You made it less attractive as a proposition to, to train as a nurse. And Not so, if you take the apprenticeship route. Well, yeah, but, but the reality is we keep having these shifting sands. And it's interesting you talk about the international situation because, you know, when the Conservatives came in in 20. 20- 2010, there had been an international crash, and we were told that was all the fault of Labour for spending too money, too much money on libraries in West Bromwich, and yet everything was down to the government. Now they're in power, everything is international. And, you know, we do realise there are international problems, but one of the things I think that is really quite insulting to our members is this idea of inflation. Because, you know, what we have, and I know Vicky was a big supporter of Liz Truss, supported the Liz Truss budget, which, you know, was a abject lesson in how to bankrupt a country overnight that involved someone earning a million pounds getting a tax cut of around fifty thousand pounds per year now apparently that wasn't inflationary no one talked about inflation when we were talking about bankers of which vicky was before she got into parliament getting that kind of return and yet when we're talking about a couple of grand for nurses all of a sudden inflation matters and if we're in this situation 17 percent of the working population work for the public sector the government seemed to believe that you resolve inflation 
by holding back the pay of those people who worked all the way through the pandemic while other people parted, you know, who put themselves out, who worked under very, very difficult circumstances, often for significantly less than people who were sat at home on furlough payments. Mm. And so the idea that somehow we're going to control inflation by, as Mike says, we're going to let bankers' bonuses go off the level, but actually to a nurse who is struggling, who is using a food bank, we're telling them, no, you, we can't afford to give you more money. We can give 440,000 top-rate taxpayers an average of £10,000 each, but we can't give 560,000 nurses a couple of grand each. First of all, as I said, I have huge respect for all those who work in the NHS. I lobbied them for the Chancellor for extra money for schools, for example. And we do need a private sector that functions. We do need people who, like me in my previous life, went out and raised money for infrastructure. OK, so just clarify that. The issue that is so challenging, and this is why it must be so difficult to be the Chancellor, is if if everyone in the public sector was given, say, an 11% pay rise, that is, I'm told, an extra £1,000 tax on every single household in the country. Or you pop up borrowing, but we can't pop up borrowing because without risking again what we saw last October, uh, partly because, quite rightly, the government needed to borrow a lot of money to support the economy during the pandemic. So £1,000 extra on every household. I just don't see how my Chelmsford constituents, many of whom work in private sector jobs, who themselves are struggling also with inflation, how they would afford that. that, And that's the difficult balance. They wouldn't have to because that figure has not been backed up by a single credible economist. Well, Um, that's the figure, the estimate I was given. Well, it was an estimate from a few weeks ago and there was then a parade of economists saying, well, hang on a minute, this doesn't net off tax receipts from any increase in pay in people's pay packets. And I think actually it's an interesting space to start to wander into playing off public and private sector because, um, you know, there's plenty of people in the private sector who are now known as the precaria who will have a perfectly clear understanding of the uh, situation of public sector workers. The reality is that you have, as a government in the public service, taken advantage of relatively low inflation but still below inflation pay awards and allowed this to fester over a decade. We've then crashed into, across the public sector, and I would say in particularly in the, in the, in the civil service, where the system just is not coping with the demands. I, you know, you, you, your civil servants help to deliver your mission uh, as a government. Um, th- it's crashed in now to a situation where it's rabbit in the headlights. So we're called into a meeting. We, we, we met. So I, I want to emphasize, personable and cordial relationships with ministers is not unusual at the minute. And it's a damn sight better than it was when civil servants were being uh, scapegoated and referenced regularly in, in the press in a negative way. That's given way, though, to just empty discussions. If a private sector employer convened a discussion with me, as the minister did for the 12th of, of January, in a situation of difficulty, I would expect them to, have, to come with a mandate, to come with the ability to negotiate, not come with t- to the meeting and say, we'd like to hear from you, particularly as we'd sent a letter before we went into the meeting saying, let's not have a conversation where we rehearse the arguments you've already heard. So we'd set this up very clearly. We'll come to the meeting. We'll always talk. And one of the things I predicted on the 12th in the meeting was that tumbleweed would follow. 
and Tumbleweed has followed. It's the 19th, it's one week later, and we've heard nothing since from the government since we met on the 12th. And actually, it's just playing it long, and that's why you've got civil servants in a situation where they wish to now protest and withdraw their labour, and it's a sorry situation. Because you just can't run the civil service this way. That's why I also repeat, is your plan to run the civil service, the people who work directly to you, on the basis of real-term pay cuts for another decade? Let's say you win in 24. Is that your plan? What is your plan for the civil service? What is your plan for the public services more generally? Because we can't carry on like this. And everyone knows that. But you do understand that we need to try and get inflation back under control. We need to try and keep government borrowing under control we need to not put more taxes onto people who can't afford additional taxes at the moment because we've already got very high tax levels and therefore it's very difficult to have the above inflation pay rises so, that so many so unions let's be are clear. asking for ha- that's not, why uh, i say one, p- one I group think- is asking for, put a pay parameter in to reflect the loss that they've had let's be clear if the government offered the civil service more than they are, but less than the prevailing rate of inflation, we'd be having a conversation to reach some form of settlement. So continuing to repeat that all we're looking for is above inflation, which will fuel inflation, is, 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 a, is a complete misapprehension. Yeah, there are lots of different all yeah. the different sectors. Uh, look, I think we're not, not going to get anywhere on pay, I don't think. So I think we're, we've not managed to resolve that one. Uh, I think we'll let's move on to one of the other things that the government is doing, which is introducing uh, minimum service levels. Labour Deputy Leader Andrew Lane called the bill one of the most indefensible and foolish pieces of legislation to come before the House in modern times. Grant Shapps, the Business Secretary, said that the public has had enough of the constant, most unwelcome, frankly, dangerous disruption to their lives. Vicky, you were in that. Uh, Debate in the, in the house yeah. uh, on Monday. What, what are your kind of thoughts on the on the bill and its kind of pros and cons, really? I suppose. So I, I do look at international comparisons. You know, the right to strike is really important, but so is the right to the public to make sure that on strike days they have minimum levels of protections. We do need to make sure that that works, especially in in areas like the ambulance service. You've got these minimum service level protections in in many other countries. Mm. Actually, you've got some countries like the US, I think Australia as well, where blue light services are not allowed to go on strike. Certainly not going that far, but we are looking at comparisons like France, which I mentioned has got strikes today. Uh, They have minimum service level protections, so does Italy, so does Spain. But and, none, and I, in none of those countries could those like, legislation lead to people being fired, which it could do in this country. Well, you've got to have some sort of an agreement. So, for example, if you're saying we've got minimum service levels that, say, the A&E in the hospital is going to be covered on a strike day, and you are the member of staff who's agreed that you will staff on that day, your other colleagues are going to be off, but you've agreed that you will do one on the minimum service, and then you don't turn up, what do you have your protection for? Okay, nobody wants to have to sack the members of staff. They are incredibly important, but you do need to make sure that if you've got the minimum service level agreement, mm-hmm. then it will be staffed on the day. Yeah, and and yes, and and, and, in, and you know the fact that we got the strikes in France today proves that it doesn't stop the right to strike. The Labour Party keeps saying it stops the right to strike. I would actually say it reinforces the right to strike because it protects the public on the strike day. Andy, yes, you, 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 um, you're shaking your head there, but you, you branded Shaps a chancellor and said that criminalising strike action is something that dictators do. You know, what are your kind of thoughts when you saw the debate on, on Monday? Well, I mean, I think there used to be a position where, you know, the right always said that the left tries to do everything through legislation. 
and that actually legislation should be used sparingly. It's one of the few things I agree with Michael Oakenshaw on. Every bit of legislation is a restriction, and it's right that they are used sparingly. And I think when you look at the minimum service level legislation, the first question is, is it necessary? Because, quite frankly, what we've heard from the, the minister in relation to the ambulance dispute and what we've heard from the prime minister about it is at best disingenuous and is at worst a barefaced lie. Because the reality was that the, the strike we had on the 21st of December, our members, our reps in individual trusts had agreed minimum service levels with every single trust which we took strike action in. And in some places, that was 75% of our membership going to work. Now, you know, the amount, the, the amount of time I've looked after lots of strikes in my 25 years in a union movement, we never agree 75% derogation, never. And, you know, the reality was that the trust themselves had commended the unions for the way that they'd engaged with those talks. And the first time the minister raised it with us was in a meeting on the 20th, the day before. And when we've looked at the statistics from the, the ambulance dispute on the 21st of December, what we found is that you were more likely to be picked up as a Category 1 case, faster, with less delays than on any other day. So what we have is a government attempting to quite simply rewrite history in, in doing this and to bring in legislation. And what we've seen from, frankly, every single Conservative government since Ted Heath is none of them are trying to ban strikes, but every single one have made it harder and harder and harder. And you compared us to, to Europe, give us European labour law. Because if you think that, like, you know, it's hard for the French to go on strike, it's not. And if you look at French strikes, you tend to see, you know, charges of police with batons and the rest of it. If that's the way you want to go, then I would, I would counsel that that's not necessarily that's, the cleverest way forward. That's not what I want to say. No, what no, I, I mean, want to no, say no. is I want to make sure that the public are protected. But the public have been protected, and, and the public were protected through, no, through nothing that your government and, had done. And the reality is, is that the state of the health service, is they're not protected protected Monday to Sunday, any day of the week. So to suddenly come up with this, which is once again another restriction, every single time there's any strikes, you bring in new laws. And, you know, we've gone a long way from the time when Winston Churchill sat there and talked about the right to strike being a fundamental human right. We now have every time a strike succeeds, you move the goalposts. Every time we're told it's fair and proportionate, every single time we're told it's necessary. You were doing it in 2016 when strikes were at a historic low. So I think the story parties should just be honest and say you don't believe in striking. No, well, this is not stopping the right to but strike. Also, on a slightly different point uh, the, fact, the fact that it's still going to allow for strikes you think that perhaps in a sense the government is maybe overselling it slightly by sort of suggesting this is a way through this current situation but it's still going to allow for strikes. You think maybe the government is it's not perhaps being clear what this legislation will actually mean I suppose. Well, in, just in, just in, on that point is it minimum safety levels or is it minimum service levels because they're two different things and, and if I may say so just on this it, I think it's been remarkable how the Secretary of State for Business and others have become, over the last week or so, uh, experts in European comparative industrial relations. And quite honestly, I think we would have a conversation with government, um, provided it's not going to cherry-pick the things it wants, because let's have the 98% collective bargaining coverage of France, let's have the co-determination laws of Germany, let's have the constitutional rights that uh, exist in other uh, European jurisdictions. I'll share a personal experience. I still dragged the bones around a football field. In October, one of the guys on a Friday night broke his, broke his ankle. We were quoted 13 hours for the ambulance. 13 hours. There was no strikes. So I don't know what the minimum service level provision would have been on that day, but it was nowhere like we would expect as normal citizens. The reality is here that in a whole range of areas, take nuclear decommissioning where we represent thousands and thousands of members with our colleagues in the GMB. If we're having a dispute, we don't leave the site unsafe. It's a 
disparaging view of trade unions in terms of the natural responsibility we take. We represent safety-critical people, a whole range of industries. We proportionately protest. We always have life and limb cover because we know that the public would be very unsupportive of us leaving facilities untended. Reality is, though, in our public services, I'm not sure they can meet minimum service levels now, but is it minimum safety, which is one level, or is it minimum service, which may be something completely different? Allow you to have your your say, getting it from both sides here. There's very clearly some parts of the public service which are critical, where the service is critical to safety. We can all see that, and the example you've just just given in ambulances is is absolutely key there. My understanding from what the Minister said about the last ambulance strike is, yes, you may have negotiated individually with individual hospital trusts, but not to have a national picture makes it really, really difficult to then think about how could you deploy the army or other resources on that strike day. In which case, the Minister should have spoken to us before the day uh, before the strike. So, so, And that was the lack of clarity that he wasn't getting, and I think it is important that we try and make sure that those minimum services are there. This is not stopping the right to strike, absolutely not stopping the right to strike, as, as I and many others and my Conservative colleagues made mm. very clear on the day. I do think, actually, you know, we are at a time in the world when you know, rights, freedoms are under threat in so many different parts of the world. You know, I, I will always defend the right to free speech, which we have in this country. I may disagree with you, but I defend your right to say it. The right to strike is also an important right. But I do also think that, that my public, my, my constituents, have a right to know that on those strike days there will be that sort of minimum service. It was obviously only first reading this week. We've got second mm. reading again. Do you think that... It will be amended at all. Do you think we'll see any changes? There wasn't really a rebellion. Stephen McPartland was the only Conservative MP who who rebelled at first reading. Do you think it's going to sail through or do you think there's going to be a bit of kind of negotiation about how I it's mean, going to work? I, I think through? the Labour Party are using this as a political tool. It's saying it's something, it's, it's accusing us of doing something that we're not. That was very clear in PMQs yesterday. So well, let's move on. If I can just say, I think it's got to be by, by January 24. The labour law of this country could be in complete disarray. Not only will we have, um, probably on the statute book, some form of minimum service level, minimum safety level legislation, uh, we'll have also seen the sunset clause uh, arise from the EU reform and revocation bill, taking away a whole corpus of uh, health and safety and employment law, which people have... Um, that is just... It, it isn't. You know, I know you're pos- positioning yourselves as it's not our intention to take this away, but the reality is you have no plan. There is no clarity of what employment law will apply in January 24. And by the way, if you're putting a case in now, you know, you're probably waiting two years to get into a tribunal in this country anyway. So that's a whole access to justice point. The reality is that this is a deregulatory Singapore on terms, Britannia unchained playbook. And even though the leadership may have changed, the pressures on the leadership in your party are to completely deregulate and to release these apparent Brexit benefits. We have to wake people up in this country to the consequences of this, because this is the basic employment law that we've all relied upon. And we have some of the most limited laws by international comparison uh, when you're not cherry picking. So it is absolutely the case that the EU reform and revocation bill poses the greatest threats to employment rights that I've experienced in my entire career. 
Vicky, I was going to actually finish by asking about Tory rebellions, but I may as well talk about Tory rebellions now because we're seeing a bit one on this at the moment and people who were pro-Brexit still being slightly against this because we're not sure how it's going to land and, and what's, whether there's time to go through all these kind of laws that are going to the sunset off at the end of next year. So as somebody who spent eight years in the European Parliament, I'm very aware of the importance of EU law and how, how, how it comes into British law. But the government has made it very clear that it's not going to touch, for example, the environmental law, uh, that it is not going to roll back on workers' rights. It's made that really clear. So I do think this is scaremongering. We do need to go through We do need to go through the EU law that's that's, that's bit come by off the bit books, yeah. that, and make sure that it's fit for purpose for the UK. Uh, a lot of EU law is a one-size-fits-all approach. I saw that many times as an MEP. And we need to make sure that we have this opportunity to make it best fit our economy. So that's the right thing to be doing. But to scaremonger to say we're just going to tear up every bit of employment law, tear up every bit of environmental law is just completely not true. In terms of where I see my colleagues at the moment, so for example, I had an amendment this week on the online safety bill. One of the things that I'm very concerned about is the growth in eating disorders in this country. So I had an amendment in there, other people had other amendments. This is not a rebellion by Conservative MPs. This is Conservative MPs who have been looking at these individual issues for a long time. They're looking at a possibly once-in-a-lifetime piece of law that's going to absolutely be world-leading and making some suggestions. We're not saying we'll vote against it, but some suggestions of certain areas where it can be improved. And I think it is really, really good that we have well-informed, intelligent MPs. It's not just a rebellion by another minister. name, though, really. I mean, you no, know, after the past no, year, it doesn't seem no. as though they're the same birds on the Conservative if, benches. If this was Tory MPs saying, you know, we're going to vote against the budget, we're going to vote against the bill, that yeah. would be, then call it a rebellion. This is Tory MPs who are saying, listen, if we did it this way, with slight changes, we could make it better. None of us voted against the online safety bill. Yeah. We all were just looking at ways that we could improve the implementation, for example, of these pieces of legislation as they come through. And hum- I think a harmonious that that, group, is, it? I, is that what it is? Do, do you know what? I, when I was in the European Parliament, we'd sometimes see a thousand different pieces of amendments to a piece of legislation coming from different... And I think it's a healthy sign that you can raise the issue in that way, work with the ministers who are working with the backbenches on these different issues and addressing them. And it means that we will get better legislation. And I also don't think that MPs would be have the space and time to do that if the party was in disarray and we didn't think the government was in, in a much more stable position. And, and I think it's good for democracy and good for society. <laughs> all right, well, that's a good place to leave it as any. That's all we've got time for this week. You can read all the latest on the big stories from Westminster at politicshome.com. And keep right up to date by subscribing to our seven-day week newsletters by clicking on the link in the top right-hand corner of the website. Thanks to my brilliant guests, Vicky Ford, Andy Prendergast and Mike Clancy. Our editor today was Laura Silver. And thanks to you all again for listening. Please subscribe wherever you podcast and leave us a review. If you want to get in touch, then reach out to us on Twitter at Politics Home or email us via news at politicshome.com. But for now, I've been Alan Tolhurst and this has been The Rundown.